Welcome to the Now You Know Akron podcast, brought to you by the journalists of BeaconJournal.com. Each week, they will share their expertise on Akron and Summit County. Now, here's your host, Craig Webb. Thanks for joining us for the Now You Know Akron podcast. I'm your host, Craig Webb. Our spotlight topic today is, well, rather artsy. We're going to have a discussion and a talk with Don Drum, Akron's premier artist, about his studio and gallery, which is celebrating its 50th anniversary in the city this year. But first, here's three things you should know from recent headlines on BeaconJournal.com. COVID-19 continues to dominate headlines, and our team of reporters have been busy reporting all aspects of life in the middle of the pandemic. From hospital beds that are hard to come by to hospital systems even shutting down parts of their operations just to meet the demand and also dwindling staff. There's also a crisis among school districts where bus drivers are in dire need as they can't fill the positions. October is finally here, which means it's fall and everyone is thinking about fall-like things. Among them are the leaves. Our Beacon Journal reporters, along with our friends down at the Columbus Dispatch, are continuing to monitor the trees, as probably you are looking out the window, and we will keep you up to date when the trees reach their peak colors here in Northeast Ohio. Right now, it looks like it'll be about the second week in October. And finally, fall also means it's Halloween haunt season. Our resident historian, reporter Mark J. Price, has an interesting look at Ads that many of the haunted houses that are now here and some that have gone have, or should we say passed away, can be available on BeaconJournal.com. It's kind of a fun look at the cheap prices and also a nostalgic look at some scary places that are no longer around. And it should also be noted, it is the 50th anniversary of the Hudson Haunted House. We have a story where we talk to the organizers about 50 years of scaring the bejeebers out of people and raising money for the JCs in Hudson, Ohio. For more on these stories, BeaconJournal.com and all of our apps always feature these stories and many more, along with updated headlines and subscriber-exclusive content that you can't find anywhere else. We're joined today by perhaps Acker's most well-known, and I know he's going to cringe by that and what I'm about to say, prolific artist Don Drum, and he'll, he'll probably correct me and, and tell me that someone has more works than him. I hope he does. His studio and gallery on Crow Street are celebrating its 50th anniversary, and Don is 86 years old, and I only say that because I know he'll say it at some point, and still creating new works e- each and every day. So, so welcome, Don. Well, thank you very much. So, so let, let's start with the corrections. Are, are you Akron's most well-known artist uh, and most prolific? I doubt that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't. I don't follow everybody or what else is being done. I try to just stay busy with my own problems. Well, let's let, let's start with the Pardon? very beginning, and, and I think it's interesting. Um, you didn't necessarily come from a family of artists, did you? Uh, no, I didn't, but my wife did. Um, my wife, uh, Lisa Plavkin Drum is from Erie, Pennsylvania, and her father was Joseph Plavkin, and he's a well-known painter from Erie, Pennsylvania. And, um, her mother also did artwork too, but Joe was, uh, very famous. So my, and my wife has an art degree from, uh, I think uh, one of the Ohio universities here, 
which I can't think of right now. No, <laughs> oh, she went to Ohio Wesleyan. Okay. So, so you're saying you married in, uh, modestly saying yeah. that you married in to art. Yeah, my father, my father was very creative, but he only went to eighth grade. He lived in Hebron, Ohio, and they only uh, had school to eighth grade. In order to go to a high school, he would have to move with his mother to another town, rent an apartment, and they didn't do that. And I don't think they had the money to do it either, because that was during the Depression and what have you. But you, I believe I read somewhere that he worked as a mechanic, right? Uh, yeah, my father was an ace mechanic, and he ended up living in Warren, Ohio, where he met my mother, and he uh, took on the GMC uh, truck. Uh, franchise and ran that till he was oh I got I think he got tired of it he ran it from uh, 1940 up through I don't know how many years till he was about 42 and then he decided he didn't like it anymore and basically I think he was a country boy at heart and he bought a farm out in Southington Ohio which is north of Warren and uh, turned it into a little resort and was happy as a monkey, making rides for kids and fixing things and whatever. You know, his toys were like bulldozers. He bought a bulldozer to build a second lake for swimming and um, things like that. So I grew up around that type of creativity, but it wasn't art as such. And uh, then I went to Hiram College. Hiram, uh, I was going to be a pre-med student, and Hiram was unique in it was one of two colleges in the country that offered or studied five different things a year, seven weeks each. In other words, it was not like a semester or quarter program at most universities. Uh, it, it, was one of the uh, the two in the country that did this type of study. So I went through biology and some of these other things. In my last course, which was springtime and the birds were out, and everybody took their easy courses. I had calculus, and I thought I was going to die. Anyway, um, I got through all the math courses in, in high school and what all, but when I hit calculus, I thought, oh, my God, this is a foreign language. So um, I went. We had three days to change our mind, and I went around looking for something else. And I was up on the top of this one building, three stories up, and there was an art class. They were doing, I think, sculpture and wire or something. And I said, "Gee, this looks like something I could do." And I uh, approached the teacher. The teacher's name was Mayo Johnson, and uh, I said, uh, "I would like to." drop calculus and take your class and she said oh no sir i said she said we have 18 kids in the class and we're filled and i don't know what it was but i turned to walk out and i said i guess i'll have to drop out of school and she said oh no 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 i'll find a place for you well that was the the turning of my life i went home not telling my parents that uh at the end of that year that I was thinking of another field. And I went back the sophomore year and took a course in art history. I learned more history in art history than I did in regular history class. And then I took my third art class 
again from Mayo. That was, I think, a graphic design class or something. And of course, Hiram is is a lot smaller. It's a liberal arts school. And she said to me at the end of the of that quarter when we were about ready to go home for the summer, but she said, you know, I'm leaving, I'm retiring. And she said, you're good enough to go on. And she said, but not with a school that only has one person teaching art. She said, you've got to find a school that you have many disciplines, many viewpoints. And, yeah, I didn't know. I was very naive at that time. And uh, I looked around, and uh, Kent State looked very good to me. And I transferred to Kent and uh, received uh, – uh, I took – uh, my junior and senior year, and I had a lot of courses to catch up on because uh, they were, you know, far more advanced than we were at Hiram. And uh, I graduated with a degree of a BFA, a Bachelor of Fine Arts, no math courses to take. And then they offered a Master of Arts. It was the first time they did that. And they uh, had a couple a graduate assistantships available, so I applied for that, won one, spent two years doing that, and um, the writing end of my career has always uh, laxed <laughs> quite a bit compared to my three-dimensional creative end, and I had to write a thesis, and we, at that time, we had two types of thesis a historical or a written thesis where if you were an art history major, you wouldn't study or write a review on uh, a previous artists or an art period. If you were doing like I was doing, I was a sculpture major, you could choose uh, uh, a project thesis, which uh, you would actually create something. I thought, well, that's the way to go. And I spent the summer between my two years of, of graduate school, uh, working in my father's barn at his lake, creating a great seed pod out of wire, and then um, went back for my second year of graduate school, and I, I found out I had to write some accompaniment of what I was doing and why I was doing it, which I didn't realize. And I wrote it, and my thesis advisor said, oh, this stinks. And uh, said, go back and write it again or something. Well, I was I was floored. And um, they gave me another quarter I was teaching. And uh, I still didn't do it. And then I was offered a job in here in Akron to work for a graphic uh, and industrial design firm. It covered both fields. Uh, and... Um, I went to work for them. I left on a Friday at Kent, went to work on Monday, and um, it bugged me for years that I did not finish that thesis. That was the only thing that kept me from receiving my uh, Master of Arts. Eventually, I had a friend that taught at uh, Kent that lived in Akron, and I used to go see him and what have you, and uh, he said, by the way, a friend of yours, came back, um, he uh, did like you did. He said he didn't finish his thesis and he wanted to finish it. And I went to the dean. And at most schools at that time, if you had not finished your thesis within a certain length of time, you dropped courses. 
and he would have to take him again. But he talked to Dean and allowing this fellow to finish. And I said, would you do that for me? And he said, yes, I would. And a whole year went by, and I still didn't get it done. And he said, you're going to get me fired. So he said, I said, I promise I'll do it. Well, I'm very dyslectic. And um, what what I found was the easiest thing to do was to dictate my thesis. By then, I had learned sandcasting on my own or working with, that's another story, but working with a foundry man next door to where I was working for the industrial design company. And then when I left them, the industrial design company, after a couple of years, I uh, rented space where this foundry was and, and uh, went on from there and really became uh, a minor expert in, in creating artwork uh, in aluminum uh, using the sandcasting method. So I then um, hired a stenographer or somebody that could take dictation and I dictated my total thesis. Then I went over, took it to my thesis advisor, said, what do I have to change? Well, they went over it and it was basically okay because then I had something to talk about. Then I hired one of these people that you, you're supposed to hire to put all the proper uh, footnotes and things and what all in place, which is legitimate. And she typed it out so it looked nice. And I hired a friend who was a commercial photographer with a beacon. And uh, he uh, came over and photographed my hands while I was working and making a mold of foundry. And I put this all together. And they said, fine. And then you had to have an exam. And your exam involved a a visual or a uh, three people your thesis advisor, somebody else from the art department, and then a third person from a different department. Well, the third person was Dr. Johnson, who taught foundry work in the industrial arts department. And I asked him to do it, and I figured nobody knew what I did as well as he would. And so uh, I also said, would you please come over to Akron to my studio and let me show you slides of it all. And they said, well, this is unusual, but we'll do it. They came over and I showed them the slides and they said, okay, you go outside. It was springtime and stand outside while we confer together. They came out in a little while and they said, look, you're doing what we want a graduate to do. You're practicing the arts. And uh, I received my thesis by mail. I didn't even go down and get it. I got it by mail, or not my thesis, my uh, graduate degree. And uh, I now am proud to say that finally I got my Master of Arts. But, you know, it took me four or five years to do this. So uh, so, so it's kind of a roundabout, long long way of, of getting that, that degree. And in some small part, the Beacon Journal played a, played a role. So you were so you're in Akron. You had your foundry. Well, actually, the beacon wait, the beacon played a couple roles uh, in my career. You know, I um, was asked to do a piece of sculpture in front of the School of Architecture. They had built a new building and journalism. 
That was, uh, what was it called, Taylor Hall? I don't know. It was, I think it was called Hall. Taylor yes, Hall. Where I yeah. study. And, right. And, um, you know about the, you know, May 4th in 1970, we had four of our students killed there by the National Guard. And the beacon called me and said, would you go down? I built a sculpture right in front of the entranceway because that's where they wanted it. And um, uh, I went down. Let's see, it happened on a Monday. I went down on a Thursday with a couple uh, beacon people. And um, we looked at it. And I stood up where the guard did. And, you know, the piece was shot with a whole hole went through the sculpture. And I could sort of line it up. The sun was right, and I could line it up with a tree. Oh, I don't know, 20 yards down the little slope. And uh, there was a hole in the tree. And I said, gee, it looks like the bullet went through the sculpture and went in the tree. But I didn't know. Anyway, the beacon got a hold of a, a former student that was, I think, in the guard or reserve that had the same weaponry that the uh, guard did. We went out to his farm, and I brought a piece of steel along with me, uh, mm-hmm. and I marked it in case it flipped in the air, in the air when it was hit. We set it up. He shot it, and we reproduced the same hole coming from the guard. Uh, the, the hole was textured with a flare out facing the guard. It was concaved on the, uh, end, or the exit. And when I first looked at it, I said, well, drilling metal, you might be concaved where you enter and clear it out in the back. But ballistics are different. And I'm sure, I'm sure the FBI would all knew it right away, but I showed that, that it came from the guard and it was printed in the paper and and the beacon won um I think a Pulitzer Prize or something for that coverage of that situation. Would you say that's your most famous sculpture? Because of history? Or or what would you say would be your most noted Oh oh no no, I don't it may be famous but it's not my best. I mean it was a core ten, which is a steel that's made to rust and hold its rust rather than rusting through like your automobile fender. Anyway, um, it's, it's been well known and, and what all has been talked about every, every May 4th for 50 some years. And what is strange about it, I became artist in residence for six years at Bowling Green State University. And it was, I was there during the time that first happened. Uh, I saw, you know, I was at Kent on Thursday of that week. Friday, I had to give a talk on my work, and then all the universities around were going on strike and raising cane because of, you know, Nixon had bombed Mm -hmm. Cambodia. That's what kicked it off. Anyway, um, I had to give a talk to the President's Club, which is an organization of, of people that gave money to the President for special things. And, uh, they asked me to create a gift for Dr. Jerome, who was the president of Bowling Green. He was leaving with his family to go and help start Florida International. And uh, he was leaving, and this was the last 
thing he was doing for this group, and they commissioned me to do two end tables and what on, and I had to present those, but I gave a slide talk, and when I came out of that, there was a student that said, Mr. Drum, would you consider doing a memorial for the Ken Four? Because Bowling Green evidently was commissioned the same year as Kent and sort of thought of itself as a sister university. I I, I never heard this before, but they knew it. Anyway, um, Dr. Jerome walked up and asked what the student wanted, and I told him and introduced the student, and he said, we'll do it. We'll, we'll do what what you want to do in terms of a memorial. So I, by July of that year, I had a 15-foot piece that I called Bridge Over Troubled Water after Simon Garfinkel's song. Meanwhile, two students related to this in Jackson, Mississippi, were killed. And uh, I think it was two boys. And um, uh, it was related to this. So I said, okay, this will be the memorial of Kent 4 in Jackson 2. And it still stands on Bowling Green's campus. Uh, as a memorial and what was strange about it every year I get a call from a student at the university at the student newspaper writing about it what on and I said had you gone over and seen or photographed the piece at Bowling Green because uh, it's a memorial to the Kent Four and the Jackson too and they didn't know about it well about the 20th year of the situation. I said, I'm not going to talk to you until you promise me you'll send somebody over to photograph it because it's part of the story. And you know, you at Kent do not even know about it. So they sent somebody over the 20th year of the anniversary. They sent somebody over. Now, what, what year is it? This it's over 50 now, isn't it? 52 or something. Yeah. Well, I, I guess by by my math, I, I think I'm putting you right about the time that you started a small studio in Akron that we're celebrating the anniversary, right? I mean, we're 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 kind of if you're around 71, we're I guess you you started this obviously. No, well, you know, no, it was in 1970, and so we're kind of around the same time. Yeah, I I had been renting space on sort of a five year plan. I rented it where this foundry was, where I learned. Sandcasting, and that was I was there five years. Then I ran another place um, down under the high level bridge, the concrete bridge which they tore down and built the steel bridge. And uh, I rented there five years. And then I, uh, one of the city people knew me and came down and said, you know, you you've got to find a place to move to because we're going to tear down this bridge and build a new bridge. I don't know if you knew the story, but supposedly the contractor that did that job and did it before the First World War, I've been told, and then the war came on and materials went up, and he couldn't afford to to do it, so he cheated by making pockets of sand in the molds, which actually weakened the bridge, and every once in a while a piece of concrete would fall out because it was too thin and then a ton of sand would fall and the oh, city no. knew it had to it had to be replaced 
And so uh, it was Jim Phelps who worked for the city. I don't know if he's around anymore, but Jim said I had to move. So I immediately panicked and went looking and found a real estate man. This is 1970 then. And I bought the building where we are now. I took one quarter of the space and had a contractor wall off uh, an area because I knew I wanted to have a gallery, and I knew if I didn't wall it off or separate it, I would soon fill it with junk and machinery and all kind of stuff, and I was putting a foundry in there. So um, the gallery officially did not open till a year later, till 71. So that's what we're celebrating is when the gallery opened. Now, if you haven't visited the gallery, it is it is quite a sight for the senses and and for the eyes. That I mean, you I think it literally is there a space aside from the floor where you walk that does not have something on it inside this gallery. I don't, I I don't know. Uh, the gallery has grown and is larger than the creative or my space in the back. And we got rid of the foundry because we needed the space and outsource foundry work so that we deal with four or five commercial foundries that we send our match plates. These are the plates that we reproduce shapes with. We send them to these commercial foundries and they send back the order, whatever it is, 25 of this or five of that or hundred of this, you know, whatever. And And then I have three or four guys working in the back. And now it's kind of a family affair, right? I mean, you, you, you have your, your daughter there who's, who's a part of your, the gallery. Well, now? my daughter, my youngest daughter, uh, Leandra and her husband will eventually take over the, the gallery and, and, and the shop and run it when I officially either drop dead or retire or no longer can do it. My wife, runs the business end and that's the best thing that ever happened is when she quit teaching and came and uh, took over the gallery and started running it it's been many years now and um, the gallery started earning money finally (laughs) when she ran it i can't tell you what year it is because i don't remember but it's been a long time now so when do you think you developed the Don Drum look? I mean, the, you know, I, I kind of think of the smaller pieces. I mean, there is a certain, you know, the suns, the, you know, I, I, I just. Well, many, 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 many people have asked me how I got involved in the sun. And it's almost a trademark, although I don't officially try to do this. It just happens. When I, I do small things here and I do large things out. And often when I do a large piece, it's like giving birth to a child and then having to walk away from it. I don't own it anymore. And it's either a piece of a park system or a building or something else. So uh, it's almost a, an emotional letdown. So I come back and I start fooling around with the circles. I was told when I was in art school, the circle was one of the hardest things really designed around or with because it's a complete statement you know it's a completely round statement connected and um i started playing when i just started drawing it and pretty soon i was drawing faces in it went all forgot the business of being 
a hard circle to work with and started developing uh, castings that were based on, on a, a round shape. And I started small, and now we do some very, some pretty large ones where, where they're four or five feet across or longer. Some are eight feet long because they have appendages welded to them and what have you. But uh, when I come home from doing a big job and need something to do, I sort of fall back on just doodling or what have you if I don't have, you know, something smaller to do. So the, 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 Sunbursts have become very popular, and you know the sun face or sunburst is in every culture on the face of the earth, either as a religious symbol or a fun symbol or something uh, related to politics or what have you, uh, because the sun gives us life. And without a sun, we're we're not going to be around much longer. So. Um, it has some justification as far as, uh, you know, a theme to work from. I have noticed walking around your, your studio in the past that there is some spirituality to, to things, and there is some biblical pieces, and, and just kind of curious about your your spirituality and, and, and how that manifests itself in your art. Well, I think I think every artist has a touch of spirituality in their work. Whether it's a, it's a go to church every Sunday or go to temple or be a Muslim or be whatever you are, sometimes isn't that obvious, but it's part of you. You know, it's, it's a deep part of you that you draw on when you create. And, um, most of successful artists I know feel this way. Not that they're great, that, that they'll talk about being very religious or religious thing, but you see it in their work. And uh, I'm the same way. I was brought up in the Christian faith, and um, my wife was too. And uh, uh, she went to one church, I went to another, and then we went to the same church, and then we didn't. And, you know, it's one of those things that that I stay in touch with, and I do a lot of religious art. But I don't limit myself to just Christ, Christ, can't even say it, Christianity. Um, I've done uh, a lot of Jewish work. I've done work for um, uh, Temple Israel, uh, some big pieces. And, and I did it on the old Temple Israel on Merriman Road before they moved. I did the 12 tribal plaques. Uh, that made up their doors. Now they're inside in the new one, the Montrose. And uh, I did a several small things that relate. And then I do religious art, both Christian and Jewish art, on a small scale. And it's not that big. But I'll do crosses and I'll do stars of David. And I'll do, uh, for the Jewish faith, I do different platters for their high holidays and things like that. The the one faith that I'm sorry that I'm not getting more requests for is the Muslim faith. Um, nobody has asked me to do anything for any of the uh, temples or uh, their buildings or for private thing. I've asked a few friends that are Muslim, but they haven't come up with anything yet. So I'm still I'm still waiting. <laughs> And I hope I'll have time in my lifetime to do more. What else can I tell you? 
Well, I think it's interesting. I remember when I first moved to Akron, um, I started the Beacon in 2000. And I think the first time I, I met you was indirectly, you probably don't remember this, but I used to be a big fan of the hamburger station that was not far from your studio. And I, I walked in on a Saturday, much to my wife's chagrin, that wasn't, you know, I, I love the hamburger station, but, you know, maybe it's not the healthiest food. And there was sitting, you know, a, a premier artist, Don Drum, inside the mm. hamburger station, uh, <laughs> eating a hamburger. Whoa. So. I, I guess what, where I'm headed with this is, is I, I think it's interesting that, you know, you're so well known, I mean, throughout the country, you know, for your American craft work and, but yet you're, you're, you're a guy who was sitting in the hamburger station, uh, a, a modest eatery in, in Akron, um, having a hey, hamburger. No matter how well you're known, you've got to eat. <laughs> right? This is true. And, and, and <laughs> I think it was we, we did a story a, a few years ago with, with you about the, the fact that the people were, were having their ashes put in, casserole dishes that you made um <laughs> and using them well, no, wait a minute wait 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 slow down my mother was cremated when she passed away and um the undertaker knew that i did different work and what all and he said you know you as a son have an obligation to do a container for her and he said, I'll put her ashes in this plastic box and we'll keep it under my desk till you're ready. Well, a couple of months went by and I hadn't done anything. And uh, finally he said, hey, now where is this container? So I went to my shelf where my best um, casseroles were. And I chose uh, a casserole that I thought would fit. And no, he no, brought her ashes. We should note these aren't like a Pyrex casserole dish. We're talking these are your aluminum with carvings yes. on them. You know, yes. Yes, it was in and a lid and what all. And we placed my mother's ashes in one of our shipping bag or our gift bags, and which is plastic, tied a ribbon on it, put it inside a container, took um, glue or um, what is it, silicone. And put uh, a lip of that around the, 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 the lid, put the lid on it, tied the handles down, and we took it down near Warren, Ohio, where my parents had purchased uh, grave, grave sites. And when we arrived, the graveyard had, oh, I forgot this. Um, when one dies and is cremated, they are allowed in Ohio, and I guess most most burial uh, yards, they are allowed to place their ashes over top a coffin. In other words, my father was buried in a coffin years mm-hmm. earlier. Um, my mother was cremated, and so uh, we asked that, that she be placed over my father's coffin, and they had a hole dug, and we set the coffin down in it, and went in to see the office or whatever, came out. It was plugged with grass. I didn't even know where it was. And uh, I talked to the man who did the gravestones, and he uh, made a gravestone with both my parents' name on it. But uh, that was the first instant that I got involved in doing items for the grave industry. Um the people, but there were others, uh, right? there, there were others who, who had requested the same. Uh, well, yeah, there, there are others, 
that I, I did, and I designed a line of pewter. I, I'm very much involved in pewter items, too. I did a line of pewter uh, boxes, and then uh, the uh, one of the uh, children, not children, he's a, an older, uh, he's probably in his late 20s or 30s, but uh, one of the bills asked me if I would design uh, some pieces that would work with some wood boxes that they have designed. And it was very interesting to me. Uh, I know of a couple, you know, companies that, that commercially make coffins, but all, uh, we went down to see this coffin making company and, and they also would make, uh, boxes for, um, crema, uh, you know, crematory use. And, uh, they were Amish. It's owned by an Amish company. And Amish are you know, good with their hands and great in woodworking and what all. And this company made coffins, beautiful coffins. And uh, they also made a coffin. The Jewish faith, and maybe some Christian faiths, have a coffin made out of pine that is held together with wood pegs so that once it's in the ground, uh, it falls apart very quickly and you become part of the earth. Uh, they had one of those that was beautifully made, but it was uh, all put together with wood pegs. And I saw that there. And this gentleman that, that ran his company uh, manufactures uh, wood boxes for us that, that are for billows now. And we supply a pewter uh, plaque that, that uh, goes on the side that uh, has, well, there's probably eight or nine or ten different designs we have. And one can choose, I think I think it's a top with you, that they can choose, you know, a special item that they want for a loved one. Interesting. So I guess yeah. as, we, as we bring this thing home, I, I, would, I could talk to you all day and, and I would feel, feel guilty that I'm standing in the way of artwork if I did. But so where do you... I mean, what's your what's your legacy? Do you think, and and do you do you see the the studio continuing on for another fifty years? I hope that the my uh, kids will be able to run it and uh, supply a place. You know, we we represent uh, over five hundred professional craftsmen, and when Lisa and I sat down and decide which way we want this gallery to go. We decided that we did not want just a local scene. Uh, uh, we felt that a, a customer or a person wanting somebody locally would go to them. So we wanted to have sort of a national reputation, and we chose people from all over. I taught at a school in North Carolina for 14 summers. They'd go down for two or three weeks and teach, and it's called Penland. It's very famous among the craftspeople and uh you have to be fairly well known and and they give you a place to stay and you bring your family and it's you can get a degree but the degree is offered through eastern tennessee university uh they have a, a deal with them Pinland does even though they're in north carolina and why am i telling you this I'm telling you this for some reason, and I forgot now. Well, I think that we were talking about how, you know, it's not just your works that, that are inside your Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, we have 
500 people, and a lot of them originated from this Penland School. These were other craftsmen teaching down there that we met, and then we began going around. And then what happened during the 60s is that the field began to become more organized, and they began to have shows like uh, there's a big show, and it was in uh, Philadelphia that we went to, and showed our things, and then there was one in Baltimore that we go and buy, and these were set up as trade shows, and suddenly we began to have, you know, really good people that we could choose, so um, we have the benefit of that, but, you know, this this lovely disease that we have running around has slowed down the craftsmen and made it harder for them to get materials and what all. And we've seen some fallout from that that situation, but we are attempting to keep going. So I thank you very much for this interview. Oh, this is great. And I, I certainly would encourage anyone who's in Akron has yet to visit the gallery. It's on Crouch Street to to do so. And, you know, those who are far and wide who, who may hear this podcast, it is certainly one of Akron's premier attractions right right behind a, the hamburger station, a hamburger and perhaps Swenson's, right? <laughs> We are at um, on Crow Street. What is my address? You have it there. <laughs> I don't even I don't even know my address right now. Well, you drive every uh, time. You don't get lost, right? Yeah, I don't get lost. But thank you very much, and uh, I appreciate it. And uh, come and see us. And I want to give a heads up to a new glass studio that is about five years old now that has moved into the church across the street from us. Okay. And Jack, who runs it, uh, uh, is teaching there and he plays with plants too. And I think they've even had weddings there. So, uh, if you come see us, see the glass studio across the street. And, and you might Thank even you see very Don, much. Don wandering around. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You too. Bye bye. That's all we have today for the Now You Know Akron podcast. Be sure to join us again next week. Episodes will be released every Wednesday or thereabouts, wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And also available on BeaconJournal.com and all of our various apps. Before we go, we have to thank our producer, BJ Lisko, who makes us sound good and makes sure that we go up on time. We also invite you and urge you to support local journalism by becoming a subscriber. If you've already signed up, well, you know it already. You have my heartfelt thanks. Until next week. Now you know Akron.